0: Hi, I'm Manish Thavan with my good friend Puneet Kurana. We run a blog by the name of StoicInvesting.com. This is our podcast series. Life is too short to learn from just your own experiences. To inculcate vicarious learning, we will be interviewing and profiling interesting people from different walks of life. Hopefully, this endeavor will shorten the learning curve for our audience. Our guest today is Bethany McLean. She's the contributing editor of Vanity Fair magazine. She's well-known across the globe for her stupendous work on Enron scandal and the 2008 financial crisis. Bethany is the co-author of the bestseller, The Smartest Guys in the Room, which is a fascinating read exposing the corrupt business practices of Enron officials. Her next book, All the Devils Are Here, detailed the 2008 financial crisis, and concluded that it was not an accident. We thoroughly enjoyed our interview with her, and I hope our audience enjoy listening to it as much.
1: First of all, uh, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolute privilege. Uh, in fact, you know, let me start by, um, by, by telling you how, how I got to know you. You know, <laughs> so sure. uh, when I was what, twenty two, twenty three, and I was doing my MBA, and uh, fascinated with the investing world because uh, one of my prof gave me a, you know, a letter Warren Buffett letters to read, and I was reading and I was fascinated by investing, but then there was this other side of the crooked investing, so to speak, uh, <laughs> um, you know, where where I got introduced to David Anhorn and Bill Ackman and Jim Chanos. And, uh, and from there, I saw the documentary, which was what I think it was 2006 Academy Award nomination. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the smartest guy in the room. And I thought, man, this is something to do. I mean, you know, this is this is sexier than buying cheap companies. And uh, <laughs> making money of that, so, so
2: more making more dangerous too. I don't know. <laughs> oh yes,
1: absolutely. And I mean, uh, one big reason why after two years of that finding, I decided to switch, you know, sides completely is because I realized that the truth is far, far more dangerous than uh, how it seems. So, uh, so yeah. But but um, that documentary made me read your book, and from then on, I, I've been a huge fan. Uh, I have to say that. So. Yeah, Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'll I'll certainly come to uh, your 2001 article and all that kind of stuff. But let me just start from your life before that article. And you were at Goldman Sachs after doing English and maths. Am I right?
2: Yes, that's correct.
1: How can a person with that background do, you know, shift to accounting related work? Was it Goldman Sachs? Was it self-study? How did you train yourself to, you know, talk to the numbers?
2: Yeah, I don't think that I really have that much insight into accounting, to be perfectly honest. I I learned what any analyst at Goldman would learn, which is how not to be afraid of an annual report, a 10K, how to go through it, how to do spreadsheets. The the problems with Enron were really right on the surface. People just weren't looking because the mythology surrounding the company was so great and so fantastic. But this wasn't some sort of um, deep accounting dive or some sort of forensic accounting. It was just simple stuff like earnings were going one way and cash flow from operations was going another way. Debt, even the on balance sheet debt that you could see was growing dramatically. Um, there were strange related party disclosures in the 10K that nobody was able to explain. Um, the company marketed itself as having very predictable earnings, yet it was in what everybody else said was a trading business. So it was these sort of discrepancies, but they were they were far more, I don't consider myself an accounting expert at all these were just just right on the surface
1: okay so uh, let me just um, you know so that 2001 was the year when you wrote is enron overpriced and i read that yeah. article and was primarily a primer on how impenetrable the whole thing is rather than saying that it's a fraud i don't think you said explicitly that enron is fraud right
2: Never. Uh, yeah. I've always felt that I got i gotten away too much credit for that story because I didn't even occur to me at that time that Enron was a fraud, to be honest. It, would, it, it wouldn't it would have occurred to me. I was way too naive.
1: <laughs> OK, so um, OK, so at that point in time, when you were writing that article, uh, should it, I mean, uh, hundreds of doubt would have creeped in your mind because, as you said, you are not an accounting major or person, you know, and you were writing for Fortune for Uh, what, five years then, if I'm not wrong? Yeah,
2: no, not very much. I've been working for Fortune for about five years. So I guess I had already learned. I started at Fortune as a fact-checker, and I think it's um, also a good thing about having been a math major is that you have a... um, not a reliance, but a sort of respect for the facts, right? And so as I was closing that story, working on it and closing it and getting incredibly nervous about how counterintuitive it was at the time or how, 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 how against, the, how, how contrarian it was rather than counterintuitive. Contrarian is a much better word. Um, I, you know, the numbers were what they were, right? I mean, there were these things in the financial statements that didn't make sense. And when you asked people who were big believers in the company, they didn't have good answers. And yeah. so, I always go back to those those foundational things when I'm working on a piece. Well, it is this, and there does not seem to be any good explanation for this. Now, the sort of fear is that you maybe you just haven't found the person who can explain it, right? <laughs> and so <laughs> that's what that's what always makes me nervous is that I, I'm missing. I didn't talk to the one person who had who had the answer, and that's just that's that's part of journalism. That you always have that fear that you're somehow that you're somehow just missing it.
1: True, true. So, uh, you know, before I ask my next question, uh, let me just uh, uh, first of all, get Manish also in the picture and he's the co-host with me and uh, he's also a big fan and, you know, he's more interested in the psychology of people. So I think he's going to ask so many psychological questions. i Am am I right, Manish?
0: Right. Uh, right, Manish. Bethany, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, just like Puneet, I'm a huge fan of yours. Uh, I think what you do requires a lot of courage and you inspire a lot of people.
2: That's very nice of you to say. Thank you.
0: Right. Right. Bethany, uh, you know, I wanted to ask uh, before we get into the psychological part of it, uh, just initially when you started off uh, in one of your interviews, you said you were doing fine in your career with Goldman Sachs and then actually change your career midway, uh, taking a huge risk and a big uh, pay cut as well moving it to journalism now now there is this there is this undercurrent i see in almost all people who have achieved anything in life you know they do what they like doing so my question is how difficult a move was this for you and what what went on in your mind back then
2: Yes, well I'm I'm not sure it would be fair to say I was doing fine in my career at, at Goldman at that time Goldman had a training program for people right out of college where you did a two year analyst program and sometimes you could stay for a third year and that's that's what I did but I didn't I didn't suit Goldman. I don't. I don't think. I'm not sure. <laughs> had it been my supreme goal in life to have had a long term career there, I don't think that would have worked worked out for me. I ended up there not because I knew anything about investment banking, but because I was a math major and it was a relatively straightforward step out after college. And I didn't know what what else I wanted to do. But it's not as if. It's not as if I was deeply committed to a career at Goldman, or they were telling me that I was the best thing since sliced bread, and how could you 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 ever leave? It was more, <laughs> it was more, it was more a, a stopping point for me, and I I didn't I didn't frankly th- think the fit be, the fit was 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 all that great. So it wasn't as if I was going to stay there anyway. It would be a lot braver of a move if I had been a superstar there, and you know they had begged me to stay, and I had said no 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 I want to go be a journalist. So I just want to be clear it wasn't it wasn't really that. But I do think there is a there is a degree of self-recognition in saying no I'm not going to go to business school this doesn't doesn't suit me. I realized and it's funny I realized when I was at Goldman I don't like working for other people but I also don't like having people work for me. I like being Independent and being able to make my own observations and and judgments about things and in that way being a journalist and particularly an investigative magazine journalist suits me suits me very well. um, but it, I think, so there was a degree of self, self-knowledge self in, in, in the decision I made, but it was less brave than it would be for somebody, you know, who's 35 and has a family and is changing career as I was 25 and had no obligations and didn't particularly care if I made money or not. So I don't want to overstate my bravery. <laughs>
0: right, right. And, and while growing up, Bethany, were you a loner, not that pop- popular a kid? Maybe bullied a bit because you know, to take
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: to take a stand against the world requires a different kind of personality. Maybe a character with an internal scorecard. won't you agree? Yeah.
2: I do think, well, I grew up in a town in northern Minnesota, um, and I yeah, I think there's some of that. It's definitely true, and I try to keep that in mind with my own children, that there's there's a lot to be said for having a sense of being an outsider as you grow up, because you're not afraid later in life to be an outsider. You're not always hankering to get on the inside, because you've kind of learned not to care that much.
1: See, I, I told you, Bethany, we're going to get into too much psychology now
2: <laughs> with Malisha. <laughs> there you go.
1: Yeah, there
2: so, you go. but but yeah, I think there's when you when you look at whistleblowers throughout history and some of them are crazy, you know, but 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 there's an element of crazy to to all of them that there's also an element of being an outsider to all of them, because to see things differently than the group, you have to not be part of the group. Right.
1: OK, so uh, uh, Bethany, just tell me one thing. So, uh, you know, uh, 2001, when you wrote that article, I think it was Jim Chanos you were in touch with. How did that happen as in uh, uh, from what I know you were writing about companies in favor of buying in sort of buy reports on companies? Where did that uh, story of Enron all of a sudden came from? Or is it that you wrote a lot of stories and Enron became more famous and there's a survivorship bias there?
2: No, it's sort of a mixture, I guess, of, of, of both. So so I was doing a column at Fortune. I've told this story called Companies to Watch, where I was supposed to pick yep. three stocks, I think, every two weeks um, that people were supposed to buy. And I would, at first, sort of dutifully take what portfolio managers and analysts and company management pitched to me as these great stories and, and, and write them up. And I would watch in horror as the stock usually went in the opposite direction. And so I started to get a little bit cynical. And sometimes that After I wrote one of these stories, someone would call me up and say, well, this isn't on the record, but how could you be so stupid? This company's a fraud. You know, it's called calls like that. And I thought, well, how can I know that beforehand? I don't want to be I don't want to be telling people to buy a stock when there's this whole other story that I should have known that I that I, I that I don't know. And so I started to feel really. I, I just I hated being so so wrong and I hated not knowing the other side of the story so I began to try to work to get to know short sellers like like Jim Chanos and particularly at that time Jim rarely spoke on the record most people didn't so you had to develop relationships with people and I actually met a guy who um, worked for Jim who has since passed away and I used to just hound him I'd call him every week and be like what are you guys working on <laughs> <laughs> and finally point, okay. I think he, he took pity on me and he said well have you taken a look at Enron? Um can you you know we can't figure out how it makes money? you know let us know if you can, and so I pulled out at that point I was what five years out of Goldman, so I was still perfectly comfortable pulling out the ten k and and mm-hmm. going through it and, <laughs> and doing and uh, doing doing my own work on it but that's that's how it came about
1: right right and uh i mean from the, from there on, I think it was history that uh i mean as you said, the article probably was not on the fraud. But the timing was superb. I mean, within a year, I think, Enron declared bankruptcy.
2: Yeah, within a year. And that really was, you know, while you're talking about psychology, you can also talk about the role of luck in life, right? If that, I could have written that piece two years earlier because the same things were true of Enron then. But it was was the luck of timing that when the company went bankrupt, people began to look back and said, well, how come nobody was skeptical about this company? And then my article stood out. But it's also interesting because at the time I wrote it, nobody cared. It wasn't until six months later, nine months later, when the company went bankrupt, that people looked back and said, "Oh, somebody was skeptical." But, I've, <laughs> right. always, but yeah. I've always thought you get most times in life you get far less credit than you deserve. But I've always thought on this one, I actually got far more credit than I deserve.
1: <laughs> but 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 isn't uh, I mean that isn't really true because I think from one of your interviews I was going through, and you said the book really didn't pick up that well uh, when you wrote that in two thousand four, and if really Enron and Enron was the largest bankruptcy at least of its scale as well as uh, you know the kind of uh, creativity with the accounts it was one of yeah. the largest um you know uh, bankruptcy why didn't the book did so well you know when when you well, launched it's, it? it it's funny it
2: You know, the the Enron, what's funny about the Enron story is that it has really stood the test of time in the sense that people still care. I mean, here we are talking about it all these years. Later, I was at a coffee shop in Chicago yesterday and the guy behind the bar was like, hey, are you the author? And he he, he remembered it. I mean, I think it was... I think it will always be a seminal story because it was such a crack in our collective um, confidence. Right. You know, up until that time, it had, that had been a while since a major American company had gone bankrupt, and the degree of complicity from Wall Street, from the accountants, it was like this shattering of naivete in 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 some ways on on all of our part. And the Enron story really became a part of a part of our culture. But at, at the time I wrote the story, nobody really cared. Even when the book came out by two thousand and four, everybody was sort of sick of the doom and gloom of of corporate wrongdoing and so I don't think did the book make the New York Times bestseller list? I'm not sure it did. It was not like this this smash hit. But what it has done is continued to sell really well over time. And I'm, I'm so, pretty
1: sure it has been increasing. I mean,
2: uh, yeah, uh, no, it, it has. So yeah. it's it's a funny it's it's a funny thing. It, it 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 has it's it's a book that a lot of people know, and it's done very well over time. But it wasn't this smash hit at the moment it was released.
1: Right, right. And um, let me just ask you directly. I mean, there is no you know there is no way of asking this. Uh, wasn't there an element of um, well uh, and since you are a financial journalist and financial journalism comes with huge amount of risk have you ever considered not doing that uh, i know you have been continuing with it but does that thought cross your mind and have you had some bad experiences in that uh, in this area you mean in not,
2: in not being a journalist
1: uh being well let's say uh, a cage rattler so to speak
2: no no well i think I think the the form of intimidation that financial journalism usually takes not always is just the embarrassment of being wrong and of people not talking to you and humiliating you and perhaps suing you and complain you know complaining to your editor, but it's not. Life-threatening. So I think it's I always feel like you need to keep that in perspective. When I look at reporters who are going into war zones to take important pictures and tell important stories. Now that's scary work. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so I feel like you need to keep a little a little perspective. Um, I guess I've always thought that that. I'm not always right about what I've said I'm sure I've, I've made mistakes and I've probably made more mistakes than I even recognize but the only thing you can do is be true to what you've learned and what you think when you write a story because if you start not being true to that then you're lost right so mm-hmm. you you have to just be as true as you can to what it is you've come to think in 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 the process of, of reporting in the process of reporting a story um, hopefully not colored by any preconceptions going in hopefully just colored by what you've learned as you've reported the story but if you ever start stop doing that then you should not be a journalist anymore right True. But, true but, and true. that that doesn't that doesn't guarantee as i said so that doesn't guarantee that i always get it get it right far from it because you know journalism is a game of trying to get to 75% knowledge and in some cases you don't even get there and in some cases the last 25% would have changed your perspective but it is a game of doing the best work you can and being as true to what you think as you can be
0: Right. Right. Uh, Bethany, the psychological aspect of the Enron fraud is a fascinating learning for all the students. You know, it is a perfect example of authority bias. Nobody has the courage to call spade a spade. Nobody dares say that emperor has no clothes on. Since you covered the story so well and in detail, do you have any pointers for companies to imbibe, maybe to ensure that this kind of culture is avoided?
2: That's interesting. I guess I think I guess I think a couple of of things. One one is that written codes of conduct and things like that don't matter at all. Employees all the way down to the lowest level employees have a way almost through osmosis of absorbing what people do and what they actually believe versus what they say they believe. And so if a company talks all the time about how grand its ethics are and how kind its culture is and how we do the right thing like Enron did, but that's not the way the place actually operates, the written words almost make matters worse. So I guess I would say that the code of conduct has to be I think Somebody spend a lot of time and a lot of money on writing these very highfalutin codes of conducts that don't reflect reality and they don't matter at all. So come up with a code of conduct that reflects reality. If you are a super hard charging culture, then make it about that. At least, I think at least be honest about it. Um, I guess I, another thing that, I've, that I that I think about that's very sort of in vogue today for executives to say they like to be challenged. I'm sure you guys have heard that from from many people. But it's not true, nobody likes to be challenged, and the more senior somebody has gotten, the less they actually really like to be challenged. And so there's also often this gap between people saying they like to be challenged and the culture they really put in place. And I would say you have to put in place a culture where you really are challenged, as the top executives, you really are challenged by people, even though you're not going to like it. And you have to set it up to make that happen, even though you don't like it. But if you pretend that you're this open person who loves being challenged, you're probably going to end up with a culture that doesn't reflect real challenge because it's not fun. I mean, even me and my meager little little role when somebody contradicts me or doesn't agree with what I'm saying, I don't like it. Nobody does. And so whenever right. I hear this you know, very senior executives say, I just love to be challenged, I think bullshit.
0: Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> true, true. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, going back to that Enron event and uh, uh, later on, you said that, you know, it required 75% and 25% can change your mind. Nowadays, do you think that 25% even comes up because the fast paced journalism, which it is nowadays, I think at that time, when you were writing, you had a lot of time to work on things. But now you don't get time to do that.
2: No, probably, probably not. And you're right. I think that's, that's a big, a big loss. I don't want to believe it's permanent. I think there are a lot of people still doing really good long form, thoughtful work. And I want to believe the world is going to shake out such that we do have this immediate sort of newsy driven thing. And then these longer, more reflective pieces that I, I, I don't know if I could predict where journalism was going and what the business model was going to be. That would be nice. But
1: has, has your style changed because of that?
2: No. So I've been lucky. I still I still write mainly for I've stuck with being a print journalist in a world where that's probably not the most in vogue thing. But as I write mainly for Vanity Fair and I do a little work for Fortune um, and those are places where you can still think a lot before before a piece is published. So I don't think my I don't think my style has changed, but that's you know that's really luck i'm 46 and i don't i don't need to be in the thick of things anymore
0: <laughs> right sure. right
2: if I, if I were still worried about where my career was going to be in 10 years i would probably have switched places and be at some sort of place where speed was a lot more valued so then uh, <laughs> right. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be in a different situation
1: okay uh, can, can i just build a question over that uh You have spent close to, uh, you said 25, you left Goldman Sachs, you're 46 now. Uh, That's quite a long career, trying to find out what is wrong with the system, to go against the system. Um, Why not make a career in financial markets? I mean, you were in touch with Jim Chanos and short sellers. You never considered short selling to be a career for yourself? I mean, considering the fact that you were doing good work there?
2: No, we're weird. I think it comes back to a personality trait again. I think yeah. I'm an observer, not an actor. And that's just and <laughs> you might say that's 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 sort of lame, but I I think that's the way it is. I don't think what I do is necessarily all that different than what an analyst would do. But my taking action is creating a written piece of work, not going into the market and shorting a company or buying a company. And it's it's more observational, I guess, and I've never I mean, to the point where, frankly, it drives my husband crazy because he says, you, you can manage our money. You know all this. You know, this, you know who to talk <laughs> yeah. to. And people have said yeah. to me, well, don't you, when you learn something, don't you want to go short a stock? Don't you? And I've said, actually, it doesn't even occur to me. I mean, I just, that's, okay. not, that's not the way my interest gets expressed for, for, for whatever reason. I would far rather write a story about a company that's likely to be a fraud and figure out how to express that than I would go out and short the stock it's just yeah (laughs) there it is
0: right uh, so the books that you've written the smartest guys in the room all the devils are here shaky ground now in all the three books you've unearthed some serious flaws in the system uh my, my question is is this great journalism and the fact that freedom of press is live and kicking in the united states i mean you cannot publish such a book in china or even india for that matter or or does this imply that U.S. is degenerating and is fast becoming a very corrupt nation?
2: Huh. No, I think I think I think the press the press in the United States is still is quite free, and even when you watch what's going on now, whether you are a Trump supporter or a Trump hater, the press is certainly not pulling any punches when it comes to criticism of Donald Trump. So it's very hard True. for me to say that the press the press has been cowed in, in any way. I actually worry about I worry about a few things though and it's less freedom of the press than it is. I think sometimes we forget that with freedom of the press comes responsibility too. So part of that responsibility is that if you write critically about somebody or something, you make sure they have a chance to comment beforehand it's yeah. that's that's it. and some of those rules of the road have been forgotten and i worry if you forget that with freedom comes responsibility to try to be right to try to be fair that we will end up eroding the 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 freedom of the press and then i also worry that which you alluded to earlier that with this constant sort of flurry of short term news that we'll lo- lose sight of the bigger picture of of it's very hard if you're focused on the craziness of the day to you you know you might not see the you might not see the big picture thing that you you should be seeing. So I, I have my fears, but they are not around around corruption or around a sort of a crackdown in any way.
0: Sure, right. Sure, Bethany. A continuation uh, question to that. Uh, after all these books that you have written, has there been any impact? as the government or any other concerned uh, entity approached you to consult for a change? or has everyone moved on treating it as business as usual
2: Well, that's an interesting question i think everyone has moved on treating it as business as, as usual i don't feel like i but i don't i don't know i don't get particularly tied into knots about the impact a piece is going to make because i think you can't predict that and sometimes things have an impact in ways you never see or, or in very slow drawn out ways. So I like to believe the Enron story has had an impact in corporate America, maybe in a way I never know or, or, or never see, but I, I know a lot of people have talked about it. So I, I like to believe it's mattered somehow, but, but it's, but it's, but it's, but it's a good question. Is it just howling into the wind? Right. (laughs) I don't know.
0: Right. (laughs) The reason why I'm asking this question, Bethany was because, Uh, I watched that movie, Inside Job, and uh, as it turned out, you know, the same set of people who got them in trouble are still at helm of operations. Uh No, it's,
2: you know, it's, 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 it's funny, right? You have this. You look at where we are in the United States right now, and it is different people somewhat, but the Federal Reserve is part of what got us into the problem of the 2008 financial crisis, and yet we still live in financial margins whose slogan might as well be, in Fed we trust, right? In the sense (laughs) that financial markets still believe that the Federal Reserve can manage its way out of very, thorny financial, financial entanglements. And yet, when you look at the Fed's history, particularly in the run up to the crisis, it would make you say, well, why do you have such faith that the Fed is going to get it right? And you could expand that around the globe to central banks everywhere. Why do we have such faith in the, in the magic of central bankers when history certainly doesn't show you that central banks have, have always, you know, have always been um, omniscient and omnipotent. So I don't, I, so you're, you're, you're right. Uh, But I, I, yeah, you're right. Good <laughs> question. I don't. I don't know. Maybe journalism doesn't change
1: anything. Well, uh, <laughs> for better or worse. I mean, <laughs> it's difficult to say. I mean, um, well, perverse incentive always makes sure that uh, even if, let's say, Enron, uh, you know, the scandal came out and people learned about, you know, um, there are few times you have unintended consequences, like um, uh, companies become aware of what people are looking for. And then they become smarter in fooling investors rather than, rather than you know, uh, getting their act straight. So impact is there, positive or negative, it's difficult to say.
2: I think that's probably true. I mean, if you were to be a total cynic, you would look at what President George W. Bush said when he passed the law called Sarbanes-Oxley in the wake of Enron in 2002, and then you'd fast forward eight years to President Barack Obama signing the Dodd-Frank law in the same place in the Rose Garden, um, and both. Sounded very similar notes about protecting investors from securities fraud and making sure the markets functioned efficiently. And you know, eight yeah. years later, right there, 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 we were. So you could argue that that some lessons, some lessons, will 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 never be be learned. But I think in some ways you get misled, maybe. I don't know, you could argue this point, but maybe you get misled as a journalist if you think you have some sort of grand calling. I view my job as telling the best story about something that I think is the most true to what happened that I can. And that's that's it. And I try not to get tied up in knots about about having an impact or making making change, because because that that sort of thing is usually unknowable and unpredictable.
1: Sure, sure. So let me, you know, um, after all this discussion, I would probably want to get into the process which you approach a story with. And specifically, well, we'll we'll uh, we'll go to that Enron thing again and maybe the book also. And um, later on, I will come back to your process of journalism in general. But I want to know what is your starting point? Um since you have become famous after the Enron thing, is it that you seek companies where there's some kind of financial problem? Are short sellers still a source of your uh, information on companies?
2: Yeah, it depends on the sort of story I'm doing, I guess. Um, because I work mainly for Vanity Fair, I suppose I broadened out a little bit. So yeah. the last two stories I did, one was on um, Valiant, which was not dissimilar to Enron. I mean, that was in yeah. many ways down to some of the characteristics of the CEO, quite a reprise of, of, of Enron, too. To, to right. So, right. yes, I, I talked to Jim Chanos for that story and other people who were <laughs> stock as well as people who, who were long. And so I do some stuff like that. But then I did a piece on Jim Comey, the FBI director, and what happened with the election and the Hillary Clinton email scandal. And that's Sure. outside the realm of of corporate america in many ways so it it really it really depends on 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 the story
1: okay so, so since you know the larger large amount of uh, listeners will be of investing community i will let me just go through uh, your basic process of so you get obviously you you know you talk to jim chener and he tells you okay you know this company looks fishy or something like that uh what are the key things you look at when you're looking at the company and there i'm going getting into slightly accounting related stuff but what are the what are the key points you would have to consider when you are looking into numbers or what are your starting points so to speak
2: well, I guess um, some level I'm always interested in companies where there's some level of hype surrounding them and where there seems to be a disconnect between what the what believers believe and what skeptics what skeptics think and the more hype there is around a company, the more believers there are, the more interesting a story there usually is. Underneath sure. it, um, I probably do less hardcore accounting work these days. Although I did do one on a company called CGI that was the architect of the systems initially for for Obamacare and had some acquisition accounting accounting sure. issues. Sure, um, but. But sometimes what I'll do these days is try to explain after the fact. So my valiant story was very much after the fact, and it tried to explain what had happened and why so many people believed in this company when so many other people identified identified problems with it. So I don't have a. I think it would be misdating my work to say that I'm always looking for companies that are that are fraudulent and trying to identify them ahead of the fact. I don't I don't do so much of that anymore. Based sure. sure. on where sure. I work, so.
1: Uh, when you were, uh, you know, doing all this kind of stuff, what was your key learning sources? This is actually a question by one of the one of the listeners that uh, when you were and you being a English and maths, what were the sources you learned your accounting from? Is there a good book recommendation or something which have, uh, you know, made your accounting stronger?
2: Yeah. Well, I've, I've actually always learned a lot from talking to people who believe in a company. I always think you don't do your homework. You can get too caught up in group think if you just talk to people who think like you do already. Mm-hmm. So I've actually learned, I actually learn a lot from talking to the people who are believers, because then you learn what they think and what it is that's convincing them. And then you can think through that and what it is and why. So I would say. And I know Jim Chanos does a lot of this, you know, he'll always talk to the analysts who have buy ratings on something he's skeptical of in order to try to try to figure it out. And another thing that I did on Enron and I've done on other companies that I think is important is to do independent homework before you talk to the company, because companies particularly these days are incredibly sophisticated about how they present themselves and they spend a lot of money on media relations and on, on investor relations. And if you go to them first, your perspective is going to be completely swayed and biased by the story they, they tell. And so it's always better to do your homework first and have your questions first so that you, you go in with independent knowledge and you don't go in a blank slate that can be shaped the way the company wants wants to shape you Um, in terms of accounting i don't want to pretend to an expertise i don't i don't have i think the key realization for me is that accounting is a language like any like anything else and it's a language that has flaws it's a language that tries to capture reality but it it doesn't always it can be manipulated just like just like any language, can be manipulated to create a false sense, sense sense of comfort. And so as long as you don't think of the numbers as the numbers that you're being presented as be-all and end-all and you think of them instead as a presentation, um, 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 I think that's, that's, that's really important. And I still think you can learn a lot just from going through the bankruptcy examiner's reports on Enron and how they managed to manipulate all of their financial statements because in the end, Enron wasn't so much a fraud as it was a legal fraud and that most of what Enron did actually met the letter of the law. And so to see how much the language of accounting can be manipulated while still being yeah. legal to create a yeah. picture that is totally different than the economic reality is just, it's its its a really good lesson. It's All a right. really good. True. And then I'm trying to remember the name of this book. I could look it up. But there's a guy named Howard Shillett who uh, oh, yeah, an accounting yeah. expert and he wrote a well, book. Well,
1: that's a, that's a legendary book. So I mean, yeah. Well, in fact, uh, you know, today and to, today and yesterday, I was revising that book. And, uh, you know, uh, Enron fits almost every um, accounting gimmick which he has mentioned in the book. Yeah. And he has probably given the example of Enron in almost every case. So, yeah, I can imagine how uh, amazing the creativity was at Enron when yeah. it comes to numbers.
2: Yeah. I, I, sure. Like the book. But I think the most important thing is just to remember that accounting is a, it's, it's a presentation of reality, right? And it's not, sure. it's not reality itself. And then to try to figure then once, once you know that, then you, you take the numbers less literally in some way. <laughs>
1: sure, sure.
0: Right. Great. One last question from my side, uh, you know, this is more of a philosophical question. Uh, how do you ensure that fraud in a democratic setup does not happen? Uh, I mean, think about it. Capitalism thrives on incentive and the same incentive taken to its extreme gives birth to lobbyists, which are ever so powerful and richer, resulting in too big to fail entities, which get bailed out by taxpayers' money.
2: I think that's a really good question and a very key one for our society here, right, right at this at this moment, Um, you know, in, in the end, I think fraud is always going to happen in in capitalism and the line sometimes between a successful entrepreneur and a failure who ends up and a fraudster who ends up in jail is just success or failure when you look back one of the fascinating books i read is um and i'm blanking on the name that but the book on elon musk by ashley vance which listeners will will, will know and the first mm-hmm. half of the book is really just excellent and one part of the the the, the story is how close or even over the line musk was in engaging in what could have been securities fraud had he had he failed but it's worked until now and so he's regarded as a huge success and these sort of these aggressive moves is just kind of part of the elon the elon musk legend and i think well what's the difference between that and a jeff skilling except that it worked or it's worked so far But I I worry a lot about and I think what you're getting at with your with your notion of lobbyists, I worry a lot about uh, total corruption of capitalism, of crony capitalism, where companies that should that should fail instead succeed or are kept alive and companies that should succeed don't don't get a chance. And I worry a lot that that's that's the system we're we're heading into. where the big are getting bigger and more powerful, not just through their financial success, but through their clout with with the government, and that's problematic if we are headed in that direction. And I don't know what I don't know what we do.
1: According to you, what can be the balancing uh, you know balancing act there? So, for example, in the financial markets, we have the short sellers to yeah. do the balancing when it comes to fraudulent companies doing good. Uh, how and what what can be the balancing act in the in the capitalistic society, so to speak?
2: I'm not sure of the answer to that. You know, you had a balancing act of failure, right, in in the past, and there's one key difference between Enron and the financial crisis, which is that Enron failed. It it went bankrupt. Nobody, they, they tried to have the government step in and rescue them, but despite the fact that Enron executives, Ken Lay in particular, were close to George W. Bush, he didn't lift a finger to help them. The company failed. That's the way it's supposed to work. In the financial crisis, instead, you had companies being rescued. And I find it the same hypocrisy that was in Enron, which is the companies who said, well, we live and die by the market, and we believe in the market, and our executives make so much money because that's what the market says they should make. But then when the market said, you're going to fail, they said, oh, no, no, the market's wrong. No, 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 the the market's wrong. The government (laughs) needs to step in and fix this. And that's just a crazy kind of hypocrisy, right? And and look, it might have been the right answer for the system that they had to be saved because the consequences for the rest of us might have been horrible but there's still something wrong with 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 the capitalist system when that's when when that's the outcome because that ultimately is a healthy system that washes out companies that have become overextended that have that have problematic business models and when that can't happen anymore we're in a whole new new phase of the game and i don't i don't know that we've seen all the implications of that yet and i to be honest i don't know how to fix it
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, just tell me one thing. Do you also, by any chance, uh, cover either politics or economy or anything uh, beyond the U.S. Uh, beyond U.S. economies or so global economies? So
2: I don't really that much, and that's not because okay. I it's not because I lack interest in it. It's just as a long form magazine writer, I don't so much have an area of coverage as I do. I'm, I'm a story person. So story comes along for some reason or another that because somebody calls me and says, here's some insight into this situation. And I say, Oh, wow. That's then, 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 then I learn. Right. (laughs) But, (laughs) The idea almost comes before the expertise, if that that makes sense. So unlike a beat reporter who would have an area of expertise and then cover things in that beat, I more try to develop expertise when I get interested in something.
1: Sure, sure. And uh, uh, do you uh, by any chance also cover some smaller companies or you always, uh, you know, so majority of your books, majority of your stories have been on Microsoft or? Yeah. Freddie and Fenny and Enron and, and do you does a part of your job also covering short, small companies going through some troubles or financial frauds?
2: Well, not not not. Really? And it could be, you know, I write a column for Yahoo Finance, that's an occasional column, it's less regular than it probably should or could be. But um, if somebody came to me with, 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 if somebody pointed out a company that was really interesting, that I, I would probably write about it. But again, I'm, I'm opportunistic in that way. So it's not that i <laughs> it, it, it's not that I'm, it's not part of my job to, to write about that, I would have to decide I was interested in, 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 and then proactively go out and, and, and write about it. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. In fact, uh, I just you know I kept this question for the very end so that uh, I don't want to, um, well, bring this emotional angle into the picture. But in one of your interviews, you said that uh, you Freddie and fenny after writing on Freddie and fenny you uh, are very scared in one way, and you you think you have covered Enron and you have seen it all. But Freddie and Fanny is a different ball game altogether. Uh, I just want to and I. I have read your lot of interviews, but I just did want you to say exactly why do you say that thing. Uh, what makes you so scared about it?
2: Well, because they are so big and so important to so many people in this country, and there's just this belief in the status quo the two companies still sit in conservatorship almost a decade after the financial crisis and it feels like it's workable and so it's one of those some of the scariest things in, in in life are the things that feel workable in the moment and so they distract you and you don't pay attention to them until they blow up and it's apparent it's unworkable and to me the current the current structure of Fannie and Freddie is not is not workable and i can't believe we're still sitting here a decade after the financial crisis and nobody in Washington is interested enough in doing the hard work to set up a housing finance structure that will make sense for the for the future and it's also a depressing story because it is so the arguments are so grounded in ideology rather than practicality that it 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 scares you about about people's ability to to make decisions based on anything other than sort of pre-existing pre-existing ideology. So I find it overall just, just a frightening situation. And these two companies still are responsible for the majority of mortgages in the United States. And a functioning mortgage market is one of the things that that you can't have a functioning economy if you don't have a functioning mortgage market. You know everything from people. People can't move in a country like United the United States, where mobility has always been important. If you don't have a functioning mortgage market, you just you've got a- and,
1: and that too, and I think it is twenty percent of the market, right? Twenty percent of the economy.
2: Twenty percent of GDP. So it's a huge. It's this huge looming problem that no one yeah. seems inclined to tackle, and it's a five trillion dollar problem. I mean, this is not small. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, it, so it, it yes, that that's it scares me a lot.
1: Sure, sure. You know, uh, there's one question which I um, which I, I think you might have to take a bit of time or you might immediately reject it, but nonetheless, let me ask you. Um, if, let's say, tomorrow I come to you or somebody else comes to you from a university, let's say a Howard or, or, a, or a good in university, and they ask you to develop a course which you would probably want all the students to know and take seriously, what are the five, six things you're going to be absolutely sure to include in that particular course? And that course could be on accounting, finance, whatever you, whatever you wish.
2: Hmm. That's interesting. Well, I guess one thing I would include, I think I would include a component of fact-checking in it because I think – in the age of fake news, too many people don't understand how to read something and how to think about whether it's how it was reported and whether or not they 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 can trust it and how to separate a factual piece of reporting from an opinion-based piece of reporting. And I think working as a fact checker is really instructive in that way because you... Yeah see something written in black and white print, and it looks very authoritative, and then you try to check it, you realize it's all wrong. And I, so I think everybody should work as a fact checker for at least have an experience of checking facts on something that really appears to be very convincing. Um, I guess that's one thing I would, I would, I would include. Um, I think I would include Insight into psychology. One of my uh, key lessons in working on Enron was I really thought when I started working on it that it was bad people knowingly doing bad things. And yeah. it, that's really just not the story at all. And so to understand the components of self delusion, maybe a little bit of corruption, some ego, um, um, the but, 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 all these components that, that that can play into stories of business gone wrong, I think, are, are really important because then you if you're only looking for bad people doing bad things, then you're 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 missing a huge chunk of important, important stories. Right. Yes,
1: sure, sure.
2: Well, I, I would. I guess I would spend some time on that. Um, I would probably spend some time on learning to write. Clearly, I think you can't think clearly if you can't write clearly, and you can't write clearly if you can't think clearly, and it's an iterative process. <laughs> true, and my, my, only in my initial drafts of trying to write do I realize that my thinking isn't clear yet, and then, and, and then by trying to write that makes my thinking clear. And so I think there's a very important iteration between that, and if people expect writing to be easy and fun, then they miss that very key iteration with, with, with clear thinking. So I suppose I would try to. I suppose I would try to teach some of that. Um, I would teach people not to be afraid of numbers. A lot of people are afraid of numbers. They're not actually, they can get very complicated, but most of what you need to do with numbers is not that complicated at all. So it just means not being afraid of it. I don't know, how's that?
1: <laughs> is it because you are from a mathematics background you're saying that, or you have seen people not from mathematics background and doing that thing?
2: Well, I hear a lot of people say... That, that numbers are just too complicated, and I think if you approach yeah. them with the idea that they're complicated, then they are complicated. If you approach them, <laughs> if, if you approach them with the idea of it's it's not that complicated, and I'm going to figure it out, and this is not rocket yeah. science. Which most finance is not rocket science. I mean, some is some some gets extraordinarily complicated, but most of what you need to know to read a ten k is not super complicated, right? Yeah. So I yeah. suppose I would I would I would want people not to be afraid of numbers.
1: Great. So um, you know I will just. Um... Dwell a bit into the four points you just said okay and it's more more learning for me because i'd love to write simultaneously uh, you know when i'm doing my work on companies or or for that matter anything uh, what are your well let's say mantras for writing as well as fact checking so these two things i would want to hop on
2: well i i do think that you you have to start writing with the knowledge that you're going to have to rewrite. At least I do. There may be some, I know there are some super brilliant people who know exactly what they're setting out to say, but I usually discover when I sat down, sit down to write that I, that it's not as clear as I thought it was and that I didn't understand. And then I have to go back and figure those things out and then I have to try to write again. And that's what I mean by iterative, that I learn what I didn't understand by 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 trying to write. And then I go back and figure it out and then I come back to the to the to the writing. But I never expect it to be easy. And I feel like that's that's something that I don't know anybody who writes for a living who thinks that it's easy. And so when I meet people who say, oh, I just want to be a writer. I love to write. It's so much fun. <laughs> yeah. I just hmm. want to look at them and raise my eyebrows and think what talk about. <laughs> it's never been fun for me. I mean, it's satisfying on some level, but it's not fun. It's you know, fun in the way that going for a long run is fun. You know, it's, it's what's work. Um, but, I, but I think if you expect that to be part of the process and if you – I I always am trying to aim for clarity, you know, so that, so that something is, something is clear and I don't always get there, but that's, that's what I'm trying to aim for.
1: Sure. And fact checking. Um, one thing is pretty clear that you have to stick to the the main sources. Uh, so, for example, ten Ks and ten Qs. What What are the key lessons you would want to give?
2: Well, facts are, facts are really slippery. So, I guess that's something else. I would I would say you expect them to be very clear, but they are very slippery. And it is amazing in the process of writing how often you will twist the facts to create a narrative that is more convenient in in the moment. And I almost think I always. think of it as kind of this process where to tell a story you actually have to let go of the facts a little bit and let and create the narrative but then you have to come back when you're done and check the facts and fix the narrative where it doesn't work because those aren't 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 the facts so but it's but it but it's a very complicated it's a very complicated dance i think
1: well i i couldn't agree more so, uh, great, Bethany. That's it from my side. And probably I will be looking for that kind of a course once it is developed. But, <laughs> Maybe but,
2: in the next decade. We'll see.
1: Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Bethany. Uh, Manish, you. any questions? Uh,
0: thank you, uh, Bethany. Can you recommend some names that we, we should profile on a podcast?
2: Oh, you know who's interesting? He does a podcast here, but Barry Reynolds, he does his own podcast. But it'd be interesting. To oh, yes. The be. big picture. Yeah, it'd be interesting to have him be part of a podcast and talk to him about what he's trying to get out of people. I think that that would be that would be fun. Um, You guys have probably done Jim Grant or tried to do Jim Grant. He's just been around forever and seen everything. So
1: um,
2: I think he would be he would be such a fascinating podcast. He's such an erudite, um, thoughtful person Um, that he would be really interesting.
1: And oh. any anybody on the short seller's side which you would want to recommend?
2: Well, Jim, of course, if they do it yeah. I mean, jim, jim is Jim yeah. is so so thoughtful and really now that he's been doing this for so many years, he's so great at pattern rec what he calls pattern recognition, which I think is yeah. an awesome um, an awesome component um, of this of of this whole thing you know mark um, uh, Bloomberg just did a big profile of him um, there were some mm. things I disagreed with about the profile but um I he's he's a super interesting guy who's also been around for a long time on the short side he's running a chicken farm now but he's oh (laughs) that's interesting mark's Mark's (laughs) fascinating he'd be he'd be a really interesting person to have on
1: great great thank you so much bethany it was amazing talking to you thank you and uh
0: interest pleasure pleasure it was fascinating conversation thank you for your time
2: thanks guys bye thank Thank you bye-bye